I can't believe how old your daughter's getting. Man, what a lovely young woman she's becoming. All right, open your Bibles to Colossians. Amy has already got her A for the semester. No, but what, what's our, what do I, I argue for a three-point outline of Colossians, which is what? They all start with D's. What's the first? Chapter one is doctrine. And the, the, the basic doctrine that we got in chapter one is that Christ is preeminent. He is preeminent in creation. He is preeminent in his church. Good. So the first chapter, roughly, is doctrine. What's the second outline or second point of the book of Colossians? Danger. Danger. He addresses two, I I think, two primary dangers. The first one we looked at last time, and that was empty, deceptive philosophy. And it's amazing to me how many Christians love Jesus with all of their heart, but they think secularly. They think as the world thinks through through the philosophies, through man-made philosophies. Um, and, uh, and so he says that, that was a danger. This is empty and deceptive philosophy. And boy, if you, if you grew up in a Greek world, uh, that, that was a real danger. The Platonism from Plato to Aristotle. So all of these theories and, 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 and uh, philosophies were a real threat to the church and a threat to the gospel. We're going to look at the second danger today. So the first step, or the first was... Doctrine, Christ is preeminent. He's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in His church. And then He deals with dangers that were facing the church. Very real and ever-present dangers that were facing the church. First was an empty, deceptive philosophy. And the second is we'll look at today. And what's the third and final point of Colossians, which really comprises chapters 3 and 4? Duty. Um, And this is very typical of Paul, that he deals with, with theology up front and then practical the practical nature of that theology later. So chapters 3 and 4, we're going to be looking, and just to keep a D, it's really not duty, but it's what's the practical outworking of the preeminence of Christ in creation and in the church? So today we're going to look at the second aspect of danger, which is man-made religion. The first was empty and deceptive philosophy. The second is, um, I will argue, is man-made religion. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not touch. Or, I'm sorry, do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Parenthetically, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts, and teachings. Why do you submit to these regulations? Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
One of, one of the great misunderstandings that we have of our Bibles, it would seem to me, is that, uh, that we will be and can, and even through the Holy Spirit and through scholars, and we can figure out everything that the Bible is talking about. <laughs> That's just not the case. Now, having said that, we understand that, that all Scripture is profitable for us. Um, but in many, many cases, and, and today is going to be one of those cases, there are times when we're really not sure what Paul is addressing. If you were to read commentaries, if you were to read the scholars, there, there is a wide range of, of opinions as to what the issues were or what the movements were or what the teachers were that Paul is addressing. We're just not sure. This is a very difficult text because we're... It seems to have aspects of Jewish mysticism. It, has, it seems to have aspects of, of Gentile cultic worship. It has aspects of, again, of Greek Platonic philosophy. We're just not sure. So, anybody who will tell you they know for sure what the problem is he's addressing uh, really is, 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 I shouldn't say is lying. That's, that's too drastic. Um, they're, they're really not... Uh, admitting the, the difficulty of what this is. So again, I, I say to you, this is my best shot based on the text. Okay. Number two, the re- another reason why it's difficult, and it's not just difficult because have, we have a hard time identifying what he's really addressing, but he, in, in these verses, in 16 through 23, there are four or five words that are only found here in the entire New Testament. Now, why is that a challenge for us in terms of interpretation? This is audience participation time. Why is it challenging when we find a word that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament? No comparison for context, exactly. We, when we do word studies, we want to see how that word is used. First of all, how that same author uses that word, but then how that word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, then how that word is used really throughout the entire Bible. So it, it, cha- it challenges us when, when, when we have a word that's the only place found in the Bible, and when we deal with, this is called apex legomenon. That's uh, H-A-P. H-A-P-A-S. That, that we have to be careful that we don't build and erect an entire theology based on a word that that's the only place it's found in the New Testament. And, and some are guilty of doing that. We want to avoid that. So, it sounds like I'm saying we, we don't really know what the Bible teaches. We do. It's the, 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 the possibilities are not endless and limitless. But we can't really know for sure, at least in this case, what he is, what he's addressing. And we have to be under, understand that many of these words, and I'll, I'll bring some of them up for us, how um, we, we, they're the only place used in the New Testament, which is fascinating to me, why Paul in this one place, when dealing with this issue of, of man-made religion, he uses so many words that this is the only place he uses them or the only place they're used in the New Testament. That, that's just fascinating. Uh, that, that, that this movement posed. In any event, we're going to look at the second one today, the second danger to the church, the first being empty and deceptive philosophy, which we looked in, in verses 9 through 15, man-made religion in verses 16 through 23. Look with me again at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The first element, um, or I guess, kind of self-made religion is legalism. 
Legalism is is man-made religion. Look what he says. Let no one pass judgment on you. So, what is legalism? Is legalism you having uh, a high standard of... of, um, Let let me see how I can see. A high standard of ethics or a personal philosophy of life. Is that, is that being legalistic? No. What is, what is legalism? Yeah, it's when, it's when the rules you've... It's, it's the rules maybe that you have for yourself that now suddenly you do what? You make them everybody else's rules. Now, when I say rules, I'm not talking about biblical rules. I'm talking about just yourself. For instance, some people say you should never wear a hat inside. You do, how many of us grow up saying you never wear a hat inside? What happens when you see someone wearing a hat inside? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? What do you want to do? Take that hat off. Yeah. Or yeah, my wife said, in good evangelical fashion, you just talk about it behind your back. Um, no, you, you, but should you, there's nothing, that's not a, that's not a biblical that's not, a, that's not a biblical teaching. And, and I know that's a trite example, but legalism is when we impose upon others our personal standards, believing that those standards are actually biblical. Okay? So that's why he says, let no one pass judgment on you. So we can infer that probably what was happening, someone was passing judgment on them and what was the content? What were they passing their judgment on? Look with me again. In questions of food or drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. So legalism takes two forms. The first one is what you can't do or what you shouldn't do. And what does he say they were saying you can't do? These were food and drink restrictions. If you read through the Old Testament, they had food and drink restrictions. Now, the question is, why did God give, in the Old Testament, why initially did God give food and drink restrictions? Well, partly, some of it was for their health, for community health. But remember, the Old Testament, as we're going to look in a minute, the Old Testament was, a, what was to be a picture of, of a New Testament spirituality. He wanted them to be different. He, he talks about that all the time through the Old Testament. God says, I didn't want you to be like all the other nations. I wanted you to be different. And so he, he had in, instructed them on some restrictions on what they ate and what they drank. But under the New Covenant, we don't have those same restrictions. How many of you have eaten lobster or crab New Testament, Old Testament says you're not supposed to eat shellfish. What's that? Trafe? You're not supposed to eat it. Well, why, why do we still eat? Well, we, again, those were Old Testament restrictions, regulations. They had a use, they had a purpose, but they no longer have a purpose. And legalism says this is what you can't do. You can't drink this, you can't eat this, you can't do this, you can't do that. So the first part of legalism is telling someone else what they can't do. Turn, keep your mark here. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. The church in Corinth had uh, tremendous problems with this. With this issue. Theirs was what they were eating. Namely, food that was, that was sold in the market. And, and the market was 
basically out front of the cultic shrines and temples. This was leftover meat from their, from their pagan worship. They'd have leftover meat that they would sell uh, uh, out in front of the temple. And so the, the, the issue was, well, I'm a Christian and this was leftover meat that was offered to an idol. Is it right? Is it okay for me to eat this? Look at 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse, no, worse, no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, I'm taking this somewhat out of context, but for the sake of time, he's simply, what would you put in your own words? What do you think he just said? It doesn't matter. Food is food. In fact, Jesus said, it's not what, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. Because they're talking about food restrictions. Not with, because the food that goes into you, he said, is just eliminated. He said, it, what, what comes out of a man's heart, that's what defiles him. So, the first part of legalism that, that Paul is addressing in the church of Colossae is this, these food and drink restrictions that probably from the Jewish element of their church was imposing on others. You can't do this. You can't drink this. You can't eat this. And so, legalism, first of all, says what you can't do. The other part of legalism is what you're supposed to do. They impose on you what you should be doing. Look again at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now it's the other side. He's saying, you, you Gentiles aren't observing the Jewish festivals and the Jewish Sabbath. This isn't interesting that that even here, Paul says that the Sabbath is not something that is not something that is binding. Now, in fact, Julie and I were talking about this for church. If a church decided, we believe that a, that a church should observe the Sabbath and meet on Saturday nights. You know what I'd say to them? God bless you. God bless you. But legalism says, not, a, not that we have decided to meet on Saturday nights because we want to follow the Sabbath, but what? You should be too. So the one element of legalism is saying what you can't do or shouldn't do. The other side of legalism says, here's what you should be doing. Clearly, he is, he is saying, don't, don't let them judge you or pass judgment on you because you're not following all the festivals or the, or the new moon or the Sabbath. And all of these things, again, if we had time, we could trace these back to the Old Testament. These were religious ceremonies. Again, turn back to Colossians or Galatians. Just a couple books back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who are by nature, those that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? This word, elementary principles, this, this is what I, I don't understand about translators. And I understand that every word needs to be translated in its own context. But this is stoichia. This is the same word used in Colossians that, they, that at least ESV translates as elemental spirits. Same word. So why here do they say... Okay, anyway. I, I'm just... Just never mind me. I'm just having a moment. Okay. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world 
whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that he goes on to preach. So he said, listen, you've become enslaved all over again to special days and special festivals and feasts. And he said, you've been freed from it. Listen, you've heard me say a thousand times. Those things were important. They were beautiful. They were special. But they were pictures. They were a menu. I always use that as an example or analogy. They were a menu. We looked, the Old Testament saints looked at the menu and they saw all these, these beautiful pictures of a reality that was to come. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But once, once the meal comes, you put the menu away and you enjoy the real thing. When you go to Senior Ricks and you get number 10, 10 combo, and you're looking at that and my mouth's watering and I'm, I'm thinking, I, boy, I get a tostada, I get two tacos, I get beans and rice, and and, mm, and when it comes, I don't I don't put it aside and just keep reading and, and salivating over the menu. I get the real thing, and the real thing is much better than the menu. Trust me. Uh, look with me at verse 17, back in Colossians. This is in essence what he said. He tells us those very things. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. And I often wonder if, in fact, Paul is playing on Plato here. When Plato uses this notion, he, he uses this analogy of, of, of reality, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, um, Blake, that, that we're, we're like, it's like we're, we're in a cave, and, and, and all we see are the light from the entrance of the cave, and we're looking at the back wall of the cave, and all we see are shadows. We're not really looking at reality. We're looking at the shadows. And I often wonder if, if Paul is drawing upon their knowledge of that kind of a, a cave illustration, Plato's cave illustration, to say those, those, all those restrictions, all of those Old Testament restrictions were shadows. No, shadows were important. And they were vital and, and they were special. But they were just shadows. And he said, what is the reality? They all pointed to Christ. He says, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying you're missing the whole point. You, you, are, you, you refuse to put away your menu and, and refuse to, to take Christ. The fulfillment of all those things are. And that was his rebuttal. He's saying, Don't you, you're, you, you've missed the whole point of why God gave us those things in the first place. But he's talking about this spirit of legalism that says, first of all, what you can't do, and then second of all, what you should do. Far too many Christians, I think, are, are unaware of the extent of their freedom in Christ. Paul says not freedom to sin, but we have freedom from these legalistic requirements. Legalism. The first part of man-made religion is legalism. The second is mysticism, for lack of a better word, I guess. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. So this is the second part. He had verse 16. He says, let no one pass judgment. Here he has, let no one disqualify you. This word disqualify is hard to understand. It's really hard to know what he's saying here. Some translations, how many translations say condemn? Say condemn, defraud, yeah, Danny, defraud, cheat. It's hard, it's hard to really know exactly what he's dealing with here. I, I think um, defraud and cheat probably is closer than, um, than disqualify. I, I'm not quite sure what that, is, what that is in this context. Probably more along the lines of cheat or, or 
or defraud you. Um, on the basis of what? On the basis of spirit, personal spiritual experiences. I call that mysticism. It's, it's, it's when our faith, our religion is based on privatized spiritual experiences. And, and let me just say this. One of the many things that makes it difficult is if I claim an ex- a personal subjective experience, who can dispute that? If you say, I have a headache, who's to say, no, you don't. Joanna's not feeling well today. And, and I, I, I praise God that she came because I know she's not feeling well. And I can tell she's not feeling well. And the reason I know she's not feeling she's not acting herself. But if she were to say, Jim, I'm not feeling well today, I'd say, prove it. Well, she could throw up in front of me, I guess. or No, but that's very subjective. I have a headache. No, you don't. How, how can you dispute a, a privatized, subjective um, experience? Uh, look at, again, this is, this, is, this is a very difficult verse. Um, he says, let no one cheat you, defraud you. I, I, I think, now this is just me. Okay? I think the sense of it is, don't let anyone think that you're missing out on true, robust, spiritual experience. Don't let anybody think that you are not really experiencing God because, he says, insisting, now they say, because now you need to insist, insist on asceticism. Another difficult word. Some of our translations talk about humility. This word is used other places of of humility. But here he's probably using it in a sense of false humility, mock humility. Um, uh, Some translations, as mine does, says asceticism. I think New American Standard, self-abasement. A wide variety of of translations. But I think if you you take it as a whole... uh, Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So whether it's false humility or, or a severe denial of, of, of physical needs and worship of angels. Now, what is that called? No, no, no. Not grammatically. What's that called? Worship of angels. A genitive. What does that mean? If, if you're reading your Bible and you're quiet, tell me you read this, worship of angels, and some are say, well, time out. What does that mean? What does worship of angels mean? It could be, yes, okay, he could be saying the worship that, like how the angels worship. So we, it means worship that, that the angels worship with. Okay, what's another option? The angels are the object of our worship. We will worship, the angels are the object of our worship, so we worship angels. And we know that uh, within the within Judaism in first century, there, there was the, really a, a cultic um, because angels were mediators for the law. Did you know that? And, and we're not sure how this how this worked out. But when God gave the law to Moses, the the angels were intermediaries, and so angels were held in high esteem. And there there really was within Judaism a cultic movement worshiping angels. Um, and, and in fact, the author to the book of Hebrews deals with that very thing. He has to prove that Christ. 
is superior to angels. So anyway, worship, it could be they are the object of our worship. They are worshiping angels. Or it could be how angels themselves worship, the worship of angels, how angels worship. Or it could be worship with them. Which was it? Which was, what was Paul dealing with? We don't know for sure. Um, I tend to think that it was, um, that it was to worship like angels worship. And here's why. He says, because they go on in detail about visions. I love how the Holman Christians translate this. Access to a visionary realm. We do know there was a strain of what we later called Gnosticism. This was a very um, mystical, privatized, spiritual experience where they would almost go into a trance. They, 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 would, they would get in tune with the Pleroma and they would receive special knowledge that you couldn't get through your normal senses. Does that sound like anything? To, we have that today. We have people claiming visions and, and, and special knowledge through their visions and through access to a spiritual realm that the rest of you people just aren't able to achieve. Again, look with me. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on that this false humility or this harsh treatment of the severe treatment of the body and, 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 and this worship that supposedly angels engage in because they go on in detail about these visions that they've seen. And who's going to dispute that? Someone said, I had a vision last night. And I say, what do I say? No, you didn't. Yeah. He, he's saying, listen, don't let anyone judge you on the basis of their, of, of their so-called personal spirit, religious experiences uh, and what they claim to see, that this visionary realm. Um, he says, in fact, what is... What they were facing, he said, they were puffed up without reason by their, and again, I don't, I, sensuous mind, DSV says, by their fleshly carnal minds. This, he and others saying, these people that are telling you about all these visions that they're having in this angelic realm and, and all of this information they're getting is not coming from God. It's coming from their own fleshly mind, from their own sinful fleshly mind. Much of what we see, not all, but much of what we see in the charismatic movement is just this. This claim to privatize visionary spiritual experiences and that, 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 then they say, if you don't have them, you're not experiencing all of God that you could be experiencing. This is one of the issues I had with Henry Blackaby. I have with Henry Blackaby's experiencing God. He says something to the extent of, if you are not hearing from God on a regular basis, you are stunted in your very growth as a Christian from the very start. If you're not having these privatized visions and these private, this privatized words, you are stunted in your growth from the very beginning. Yeah, right. Uh, what did he say, at least, at least about those in the church of Colossae, what did he say? Look at me in verse 19. He says, 
They're not holding fast to the head. They've lost connection. And when I say lost, it doesn't mean necessarily that they had it at one time and now they lost it, although that, could, that is a possibility. But I think what he's saying is what they are teaching you is not from the head. And who's the head? Christ. And head means source or authority. This is not from God. This does not, what they are teaching and saying to you about these angelic, uh, this angelic worship and these visions that they're having of the, of the play Roma is not from God. It's from their own sinful, indulgent flesh. He said, it is through Christ, the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. He's saying, you, you as a church want to grow spiritually, you stay in Christ, not in external visionary um, realms. It's in Christ. True spiritual life, true spiritual growth is found by holding fast to Christ in Christ alone. All we need is Christ. If you want to grow, you don't need visions. You don't need privatized, subjective spiritual experiences. They may come from time to time. But that's not what is needed for spiritual growth. Now, Paul now summarizes, by the way, you don't need transcendental meditation. You know that some Christians actually engage in transcendental meditation? You don't need yoga. Do you know that yoga is not just a stretching routine? To say to, to a Hindu, to say to a Hindu that yoga is just a stretching at, at, at a stretching routine would be like saying to us, baptism is just taking a bath. Baptism is just swimming. Uh, no, baptism to us is, is, sim, is symbolic of a spiritual reality. Yoga is not just a stretch. If you want to get involved in a stretching program, do Pilates or just look up stretching. Yoga built into the stuff that you do are spiritual or become there spiritual reasons why you do it that way you get in in touch with your chakra and it's be careful stay away from that stuff um, so man-made religion he says is legalism what you can't do what you're supposed to do mysticism that that, that our spiritual growth in life is based on the, this privatized visionary realm um, in their case that this worship of angels and, and therefore, the, this severe treatment of the body. Now, apparently, this, this strain of Gnosticism was the kind that said because there's so, that, that the flesh is, is purely evil and spirit is purely good, that you, you're to punish your flesh. Okay? Probably that was the strain that they're dealing with. We don't, that, that's not how you get spiritual. Uh, and in verses 20 through 23, very quickly, he summarizes these two points. Look with me at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits or the, the basic principles of the world, why is it if you're still alive in the world? Or why is it, or is it that you still belong to the world? As if you still are living like you did when you were in the world. Do you, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. By the way, he says, these, all, these are just, this is just food and stuff. that just perishes. And it's according to what? Human precepts and teaching. The teaching of man. So he's going back and he's summarizing what he talked about in terms of legalism. Why do you submit to these regulations? And then in verses 
22 and 23, or actually 22 continues that. In verse 23, he summarizes this notion of private experience, this, this spiritual experience. He says in verse 23, these, all of these have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or self-abasement or, or false humility and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He goes, all this stuff looks really good, but there's one problem. It doesn't work. Right. Yeah, they got to the point, yeah, it was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And only one person that would go into the Holy of Holies. But yeah, that was the only day they were to fast was, 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 was the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees came along and said, hey, well, if you fast once a year and you, you get spiritual, you'd be more spiritual if you fast twice a year. Or three, and better yet, let's fast four times a month. Or let's fast... You see, you see the point. It has the appearance of, of spirituality. It has the appearance of growth. But it, it really doesn't. It doesn't come through with what it claims to do. Because they've lost connection to the head. Well, two things, guys. What, what, are, what are the? If I were to summarize all of these, I'd say that the two components of man-made religion are self-effort. We see this with legalism. This external performance. As long as I do the, I check off the boxes of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. That's not, that's not God's way. God's way is not on your works. And, and by the way, legalists don't claim that their works save them, but they claim that their works will now make them holy. And Paul says, no, your works don't make you holy. They look good, but they don't make you holy. The one work that makes you holy, you had nothing to do with. And that was Christ's work. So man-made religion loves to focus on performance and self-effort. Number two, man-made religion loves to focus on subjective experience. Let me go back to what Kelsey is saying. Please don't hear me saying that there is no subjective element to our faith. There better be. We're dealing with a God who is unseen. God the Father. He has no body. He's unseen. We're dealing with the Holy Spirit who doesn't have a body. But He's a person. They're, They're real persons. There are spiritual realities around us that there is for sure or there should be a very subjective, personal relationship that you have with Christ. This is not a class. This is not a textbook. So so I'm not saying that there is no subjective spiritual realities in our lives. There should be. But what we're talking about is Is that the primary mode by which we commune with God? And are we saying that that is the only way to truly grow and to truly be spiritual? And unless you are doing it too, in fairness, there's some things in Blackaby that I like. This was one thing I didn't like. If you are saying that unless you have the the spiritual experiences that I'm having... You are not spiritual or you're missing out somehow on your relationship with God. 
Paul said, don't let anybody defraud you like that. Look with me finally in closing at 2 Peter 1.16. 16. See, I bet you all are, are wooing the day that she's told us you were hot, huh? Feels good. 2 Peter 1. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born by Him, born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We, are so, we ourselves heard this very voice. Was that an inner voice? We heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the, proof here is, the, the point here is he's saying, listen, when we proclaimed Christ to you, it was not based on our experience. That We didn't base it on the experience we had on the mountain, although that was pretty cool. If you look, and well, that wasn't a vision. That was, yeah, wow. Boy, I tell you what, if, if I had been there, that, I would have written a book. I would, have been, I would have been going to Christian conferences. They would have my books in the foyer. And after the foyer, I'd be signing it for people. Um, because I saw, Je- I saw Jesus and, and Elijah and, and, and His glory. And, and uh, in fact, Peter said, you know what? I just want to see. Let's just pitch tents and just stay here. Now, they said, no, we have something more sure and more steadfast than that experience. And that is the prophetic word. That is the word of God. That's how we stay connected to the head. Again, don't hear me saying that there is not a... a yes, I'll even use that there's a mystical element to our faith. There is. There should be. But we cannot build, base our spiritual growth and our, and our, and our spiritual vitality on that. And that alone. Now, some of us, we need a little more of that. We need a little more of that. We see the excesses maybe and we we only part of that. We need a little more of that. We need a little more of that in our lives. But self-made religion says, you know what? It's about external performance. Do this. Don't do that. And it's about, you know what? Uh, it's just a private, these private uh, visions and, and, and mystical experiences that unless you're having them too, you're missing out. And that's not the case. That's not the case. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that in many ways You do deal with us on a very personal and in a very spiritual level. And when those times come, we are certainly um, ministered to. Uh, Father, that's not what we're talking about. I don't think that's what You're talking about. I think You're talking about that, uh, that approach to our spiritual lives that is based purely on
on trying to achieve and trying to enter into some kind of visionary realm of hidden knowledge, um, of hidden private experience that everyone should have. Lord knows that we don't want to be involved in that. On the other hand, Father, we don't want to be involved in legalism either, where we just all it's all about external performance. And we look good, we sound good, we talk good, we smell good, but there's no reality inside of us. There's no spiritual reality inside of us. So, Father, help us to walk between these two things, that we might not lose connection with the head, that, that our focus would always be on Christ. Lord, thank You that it's from You that You bring spiritual growth. Lord, we thank You for alerting us to these dangers. And we, uh, we praise You in, in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?